0: You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.
2: Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. A few years ago, back in March of 2019, my co-host Adam Bristol interviewed Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Matt Richtel about his new book called An Elegant Defense. It traced four different stories illustrating how our immune systems function. Well, Adam and Matt had such a good time in conversation with one another that it became a bit of a nightmare for our editors. there was a lot of content that needed to be pulled in order to keep it to our usual episode length. So when Matt's latest book, Inspired, all about the science of creativity, came across my desk, I first handed it to Adam, thinking, well, he would just love another chance to hang out with Matt. But Adam immediately turned it back to me and said, look, you're the one that's really interested in creativity. And of course, he was right. But I thought, you know, I've been hosting this podcast for a long time. We're almost at 400 episodes. I know how to keep a conversation short and crisp. Well, I was no match for Matt Richtel, because by the end of the episode, we had had such a good conversation that somehow he convinced me to sing back up on a track, a song that he wrote. So that's in store for you if you listen all the way to the end. But in the meantime, Here's my conversation with Matt Richtel, who won the 2010 Pulitzer Prize for a series he wrote in the New York Times on distracted driving. He also writes fiction, and even his nonfiction books have a very narrative component. So, this is a person for whom creativity is a friend, or at least a tool that he uses every day. And so, it makes sense that he would devote his next book to a deeper understanding of the topic. Matt Rixel, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. You know, a lot of times people write books about creativity and it's all good stuff, right? I mean, who can argue that creativity isn't something we all want, that, you know, we encourage, that we all wish we had a little more of. It's where the fun happens, right? Puppies, like, let's get creative. rainbows, totally, sunshine,
3: unicorns. <laughs> chocolate. But <as> you,
2: <laughs> yeah, but as you point out, Actually, creativity is hard and difficult. You know, fearful and also destructive. So let's start there. Let's start with like, what are the things that people don't talk about when it comes to fundamentally understanding creativity, and why is it that so can, many can people I, can, can I? Yeah, for my money,
3: you have hit on the most interesting science in this book: our subconscious bias against creativity. And when I understood how people really see creativity, not how they explicitly state they see creativity, it transformed how I saw this book and how I see our approach to creativity. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. To If I say creativity to you, your explicit feeling is what? You kind of got at it.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, it's something I aspire to do. It's something that brings, you know, the most fundamental joy and meaning in my life. You know, it seems like the, the ultimate experience, flow, right? What could be the downside? Right. So
3: I want to give us a, a little picture and a big picture. Little picture, phenomenal research done by a guy named Jack Giancalo, who winds up over the last decade really being luminous in this field. But he asks, how do we really, along with some colleagues, how do we really feel about creativity? And he does this study that is akin to the science we do about implicit bias on race. So you know how you say, well, I see everyone as black, white, Asian, et cetera, et cetera. I see everyone as the same. We explicitly state that. But when you do an implicit or subconscious bias test, what gets revealed is we have very different views when measured on a subconscious level. So he says, let's try this with creativity. And what he discovers is that people, particularly when they're feeling uncertain, associate creativity with toxins and vomit and poison. Are you feeling sick to your stomach yet? Uh, A little, yep, a little bit. (laughs) So- Let me hit on first what the condition was, uncertainty. When he did this study, he created a group that wasn't sure they were going to get paid for their work and a group that for which pay was not relevant. So he he created a feeling of uncertainty and he ran them through these subconscious bias tests and they reacted very differently, very concerned about the idea of creativity. Why would that be? Well, this brings us to the big picture. Creativity at its core is inherently disruptive and even destructive. Let's take the a simple example that's in front of us today that might come across as politicized, and I want to be very plain that there's nothing politicized about what I'm saying here. I'm, I'm thinking about this from a pure journalistic perspective. Let's think about Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. So here you have a Tesla, and in its wake, so many other battery-powered vehicles that, for all kinds of reasons, seem insanely creative and transformative and all kinds of traditional energy sources are put at risk by this and other massive creations. You could even go so far as to say, setting Elon Musk aside or putting him in a broader category, we're taking a giant stab at climate change. But However you feel about fossil fuels, a whole bunch of people work in that industry. It is massively destructive. You can say this for so many huge creations that they displace something else. Put in a word, creativity is one person's massive novelty, Nobel Prize winning, extraordinary development, and somebody else's death.
2: That's true, even in the creative fields that maybe are considered, you know, less overtly destructive of jobs. say, for example, a person who's directing an opera in a completely new light. It's not just that it leads to people, you know, not having the experience they thought they were going to come in and see this like eighteenth century palatial set, and now it's set in like, you know the u s and 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 uh, you've got but you also have the sense that like there's something that that person sees or does that you are not a part of. And I think that also makes people feel uncomfortable.
3: Yeah. It shakes up the, the place that we got comfortable in. There's a story from Bono in the book where it's the day after he wins the Grammy for Beautiful Day. And he had been feeling like he was left out of music and he couldn't figure out why. He's like, Aren't, I mean, he says this self effacingly. Aren't we geniuses? We're you too. We were, <laughs> we had conquered the world and then they started to get left behind. And he realized that the music that they had written did not take into account the development of the subwoofer. And at along had come this technology that a lot of new Artists were playing to and they wrote a song, uh, an album using the subwoofer, and they got back into the game. It wasn't a reflection on whether Bono had been creative, was creative, U2 was phenomenal, but rather that a set of circumstances that had emerged was consistent with what they did. And he felt left out and he was ambitious enough to get back in the game.
2: Yeah. I mean, thankfully to all of us, uh, you know, (laughs) huge fan of U2. That's a wicked great album. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's no Achtung baby, but, but, but uh, can I just
3: add one story about <laughs> yeah, sure. obsolescence? Yeah. So at the beginning of this, just to this to this very point, the very point you're making, I'm in the I'm in the front yard playing basketball with my son, and I say, I may interview Bono for this book. My son was eleven at the time. I, do you remember this anecdote from the book? Yes. And he goes, My son goes, Is Bono
2: a him or a her? <laughs> so you know you're going to be obsolete yeah but you know one of the other things that i thought was really interesting in how you lay out your book and you say this in the prologue that you are going to get creative with pronouns or or not pronouns with uh with with the first person second person third person narrative style so i shouldn't that that that's more accurate right um and that that there're going to be times when you're going to turn a, a, this book from a third person narrative to first person. Um, and you do that. And 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 in part, you talk a little bit about, um, and I think, I think I see why you had to do that, because I don't think that you could have talked about this idea of finding your voice without uh, explaining how you found your voice. And I think that that's something that we don't talk about, at least in the neuroscience or the psychology of creativity, which is a field, you know, I'm in, we don't talk enough about, we talk about like, inspiration and what that might mean and the muse and we think about it as like well it's just getting your brain into some incubation phase that that you know allows some um, subconscious or unconscious thoughts to percolate up that's the muse or getting ex- inspiration from a diversity of experiences or diversity of relationships with people but there's another component of it that i hadn't really thought about it which is that you know allowing those thoughts to be heard and not immediately dismissed as that's not good. That's not interesting. And so wh- tell us about that. Well, first, I just want to connect it back to what we started with.
3: I felt that if I was going to understand creativity myself or try to impart anything about it to someone else, I had to start with, with the, our actual baseline. And I think we need to own the fact collectively. I, you know, I don't mean to be like uh, you know, a nanny. <laughs> we need to use our forks. <laughs> but actually that is relevant to where we're going. at that sentence is relevant to where we're going.
2: The study about the family that has fewer rules. Yes,
3: yeah, fewer rules. So I'm going to come to that. So the, the part about the fact that we can see this as noxious in order to get to step two collectively or individually, we got to understand that creativity is scary. It's not just scary when we see it in others. It's scary when we see it in ourselves. And so How that gets us to our next step is, in order to be creative, the science shows us that you, one, you, one, see, I'm already having trouble with my pronouns. (laughs) We must give ourselves permission. Now, you think to yourself, well, I'll give myself permission to be creative. But that notion isn't held in those words. It's held in the act of thinking about things that might cross lines that make you implicitly uncomfortable. And I'm going to tell you a bit about my journey in a second, but I want to to show you where those lines come from. Those lines get baked in very, very early. There's a term in creativity science called the fourth grade slump. It stems from a study in 1959 that lasted almost a decade in which a, a seminal creativity scholar looked at did creativity measures over a series of years with the same youth and a a series of youth and found that kids started coming up with fewer ideas around fourth grade. Now, what was happening around that time? Well, what was happening around that time is through the education system and parenting, we were learning to integrate into our lives the idea of rules all over the place. Don't pick your nose. Don't cross the street without looking don't use your fingers when you eat so we get all these rules and what what the upshot of those rules is we start to say no to ourselves before we say yes we have a filtering process that says no before yes in order to let creative thoughts flow you have to open a portal that says there ain't nothing wrong with what's passing through my head right now to give the most extreme example in another study i cite in the paper from a creativity scholar, I think the name Jonathan Schooler, but I I, forgive me if I got that wrong. They looked at how hard it was for people to just sit with their own thoughts, and it is excruciating. Mm -hmm. Mostly what people do is worry, or they see that time as not productive. That is a period of permission. So now let me just briefly tell you, I didn't make this a memoir, but one of the reasons I think I was able to write this book is I went through a pretty excruciating transformation. I know what it feels like to be on both sides of the permission line. So I grew up in Colorado, which is your flyover state with a little bit of machismo. And I played a bunch of sports and I hung with the jock crowd. And I thought, I thought if you, if you can believe it, given how garrulous I am right now, I thought I was supposed to be the strong, silent type. And I tried to respond to my girlfriend with grunts. <laughs> you know, cause I thought it was cool. <laughs> I did. I, I thought I was being cool, but I was, bur- I, I was totally inauthentic to myself. And somewhere around my twenties, um, as I was going up, up a career path and not having any clue what I was doing, I came to a screeching halt. And when i when I say I came to a screeching halt, I mean, I came the F undone and I, I went to a shrink I felt anxious all the time. I had no clue what was wrong with me. And I I tried for a while to play it off as some sort of physical illness. I took a bunch of antibiotics. Doctors said that sounded like the right thing to do. And I think I must have known on some level that wasn't right. So I'm probably aggrandizing this. This is just called going through your 20s. (laughs) But I went through it good. And when I came out the other side... I had no arrogance left. I had, did I prostate or prostrate myself? (laughs) Prostrate, I think. (laughs) I get get those two words mixed up.
2: Maybe in your 80s, you prostrate yourself. (laughs) That's right.
3: In my 80s, I prostrated myself. I mean, I'm just going to lay myself bare. I would sit on the floor of the bathroom when I start to feel bad and sob to the indigo girls. There you go. But, but I learned in this process that there was nothing inside of me to be afraid of. And in fact, the more I listened to and heard what I was feeling, the more in tune and comfortable I felt in the world. And sometimes when I sobbed to the Indigo girls, I started laughing and I realized that there was no one who could judge me. Not that I was better than anybody. I feel no better than anybody. But I do feel like I'm just as worthy as anyone else. And in the course of that, I started to write. And I started to write from the heart. And I started to write without ambition. Maybe the most telling version of this story I can give you... Are you are you willing to hear one more beat or...
2: Yeah, yeah, please. So...
3: Here's how far away raw ambition got from me. In the year in the late 90s, the New York Times hired me as a freelance writer and a full-time freelance writer and I was based in San Francisco and I they offered me a full-time job. They said, "Matt, you're getting on the front page. That doesn't happen with full-time freelancers. We'd like to give you a job." And I said, "Well, I don't know." They said, "And you just have to move back to New York." And I said, "No." I am not strong enough yet to be in that environment without succumbing to the judgments of others. And I've just found out where I'm at. They said, you can stay in New York in San Francisco for a while. And a year later or so, they said, Matt, you have to move back to New York or you're fired. Everybody moves back to New York. And I flew to New York and I met with a high level editor and I said, Hey, I'm happy. Are you happy? They said, we're very happy. That's not what this is about. Everybody moves to New York. You're here, October 1st, 2001, or pack your bags. In October, I'd, by then I'd met the woman who would become my wife. I came back. I was very happy. Came back to San Francisco on October 1st, 2001. I waited for the phone to ring, and here I sit still. During that time, I wrote a novel that meant the world to me. I won a Pulitzer Prize. I won it by writing stuff that went against the grain of what people were writing against technology. I'm not upholding myself as anything other than. I listen to myself. End of (laughs) self-inflated.
2: But no, I mean, I I think what what you're getting at, though, through through this kind of memoir-like story is that there is this very strong correlation, I think, between the ability to continue to be creative and be successful at it and self-efficacy. Your sense that, like, you know, you are good enough. And, you know, one of my I have a, on my shelf a, a, a series of books by Stephen Pressfield, you know, the war of art, which is exactly that, all the reasons we give to procrastinate that are basically lack of self-efficacy. And here's why I think this is really important. In fact, one of my students uh brought this up in in class uh the other day uh, at the university, and well, we had this conversation about how. A lot of kids, particularly those that come from marginalized backgrounds who, you know, struggle to succeed, the one thing they don't develop is self-efficacy because they're told they're wrong, they're not good enough, they don't make it on the test, they're misbehaved. You know, there's all these things that, that and and so, you know, and it's easy when you have a lot of resources to work on your self-efficacy, <laughs> but when you're just struggling to survive, like... That's not even on the radar.
3: I can sum up from um, late in the book, I refer to a guy um, I talked to for a story about AA. And this is the best encapsulation I can give in terms of trying to communicate what this all means. In AA, or for this guy in AA, there was a phrase that he learned as he got clean. Getting clean is an act of recognizing that you're okay. But you're not any more, you're not better than anyone else. And the reason that's so vital is oftentimes you're drinking because that idea is out of balance. And he says, I am worthy, but I am no more worthy. My ideas are worthy, but they're no more worthy than yours. And to the extent that you can, a person can clear of their mind, the ego in that experience, what it feels like is, a flow of ideas that comes without judgment of your own or the implicit judgment of others. And I would like to offer a way for anybody who's listening who wants to take a shot at this to realize they're probably already doing it. Can I give this exercise that I sometimes mention to friends? They're like, well, I don't think I'm creative at all. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to try this with you. You go to bed at night. Let's keep this as clean as you want, but not any cleaner than you don't want to be. Do you ever have fantasies? Yes. Okay. Do you want to share one or do you want me to share a few so that you don't feel uncomfortable?
2: I want you to share a few so that I don't feel
3: uncomfortable. (laughs) Okay.
2: I'll give you- I mean, I have clean fantasies, right? I have clean fantasies of like, I've always wanted to fly, like literally be able to- Okay. Talk me through what that
3: looks like in your head as you're going to sleep.
2: Yeah, so like literally I'll be lying on my bed and I will imagine what it would be like if I could take my body, fly up into the ceiling, open the window, fly out of my house, and I also live in San Francisco, fly over the city and just like fly around. How have we not had coffee? Uh, well, we will from now. <laughs> and we will. Well on a plane. <laughs> yeah. No, no, not on a plane. Not on a plane. Just like me actually flying like Superman. Okay, so there you are flying. What happens next? It's just this exhilarating feeling of being able to go anywhere I want to go and be able to turn anywhere, like, you know, just have the freedom of like, no boundaries.
3: And your brain is relaxed and you're seeing yourself fly?
2: Yeah. And also that it physically feels
3: good. And it physically feels good. Do you know, are you on a carpet? Are you on a... No,
2: just literally Superman. Are your
3: arms to the sides? Yes. They're to the sides. Okay. Do you see something below you?
2: Yeah. When I look down, I see, you know, the bird's eye view of the city. But, you know, I also see the bridge and Alcatraz and, you know...
3: I'm just curious, how far do you get flying do you go a long distance do you start over flying do you fall asleep what happens
2: i mean some usually i like i i fly over close to buildings and i like i peek in and see what other people are doing it's like voyeuristic in that way and then eventually sometimes i go to other cities but like eventually yeah i usually just fall asleep
3: absolutely awesome you are a writer so you have just started a book or a story what happens when that Continues is that you follow those ideas further, but you have to have given yourself permission to follow those without judgment. So, when I was younger, I used to imagine, I didn't, our family didn't have a ton of dough. And I would imagine, I would imagine that I was in a sporting goods store and I had $500 and a shopping cart and I had to spend, I had to fill up the shopping cart. But I had an hour and I had to spend the money because I would never think to be able to spend all that money. But later on, in the less clean version, when I was between a girlfriend and someone else, I would think about all the times that I would meet the girl at the bookstore. I was just telling myself a story. Hmm. Now, here's how that becomes a book. In about 2003, now at my desk in San Francisco, which I'd refused to relinquish, and still at the Times, which I was terrified would fire me. One day I had this thought. I was sitting in a cafe and I had this thought. I'm sitting in a cafe. Actually, what I did was I pictured, I think a a better looking, slightly taller version of me sitting in a cafe. (laughs) And I saw a beautiful woman, uh, not a beautiful woman, but the hand of someone, of a, a woman put a note folded on my table. And by the time the character that I was imagining looked up from this crowded cafe, this person had gone. And the character that I was thinking about, the sort of me, walked out of the cafe to follow, opened the note at the door of this crowded cafe, and it said, get out of the cafe now, and the cafe exploded. Hmm. And the character was sitting outside moments later in the rubble, thinking about the note and being startled, not because the cafe had blown up, but because he recognized the handwriting as belonging to his girlfriend who died five years earlier. And I remember my dad saying to me, I'd come into town that weekend and he said, dad, I'm going to write a book. Hmm. And I just followed that mind wandering through. So let me sum up where we, where we are in like, you've got all these burdens keeping you from listening to that thing. And then you've got all this stuff inside of you that you just keep stopping. Now, you might say to me, well, okay, so I let that I let my mind wander. That doesn't necessarily become a book, a piece of music, an app, as any number of things where you might have an inclination. Here's where the rules of life do come in handy. After you've learned how to participate in the world, you have an implicit sense of structure around a lot of things. You have an implicit sense of structure around music. You have an implicit sense of structure around an app. You have an implicit sense of structure around a business. And so eventually, as the rest of your brain gets involved in the process, it's not like you're on an unending journey. You will bring some structure to this thing, but this thing will never be there absent the permission.
0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash impact.
1: At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica empathy is our best policy.
2: The the thing that that's you know also kind of strikes me about everything that we've been talking about is that There's this sense then, like, as you mentioned at the very beginning, that there's a humility that also seems to come with with creating is is the sense that, you know, you're not, you know, this idea that you're a genius, I think, can sometimes get into people's way. Because of some of these forces that you're talking about, if you're censoring all of your thoughts, because now you're questioning whether they are worthy of the genius that you think you are, (laughs) that can put up blocks and that can make it challenging. And yet at the same time, a lot of, as you mentioned, the research on mind-wandering suggests that the more we do it, the more miserable we are.
3: Yes. So let's, let me pause on, let me, I want to hit on two things. I want to hit on genius. More fascinating research in the book, not, is that they looked at intellect and creativity. Yeah. The royal they. (laughs) (laughs) The field. (laughs) Some people, (laughs) some very highly qualified researchers looked at the relationship between intellect and creativity. And actually, genius doesn't help.
2: Up to, yeah, up to a point. It's good for a bit. And then it's like that last bit. It doesn't, right? Because there's a certain... It doesn't do you any over an IQ of 147 right. doesn't help. And exactly. 120,
3: which is the average IQ, is more than sufficient to be highly creative. My point being, intellect is not an arbiter of creativity. Many, many, many of us have sufficient. It's that other piece. Let's talk about this piece about why mind-wandering can be uncomfortable. And I'll, again, tell it through a personal experience that may relate second to telling about...
2: Hold on. I just want to get back to the intellect part, because I think part of the problem is that we don't have really good measures of intellect and whatever that means. We can't define it. Just like creativity is hard to define and certainly like the multitude of ideas and if you define intellect purely by the number of ideas you can generate well that's creativity <laughs> so you're going to find a heavy correlation right
3: and if you and if you do it by IQ you've put yourself in a really limited box exactly and in fact i think the creativity science is among the strongest to say that the IQ and the test scores are simply not What helps us lead to a rich human experience individually or even collectively? Yeah. It's so vital what you say there. The bottom line is let's not conflate genius with creative or genius with happiness or genius with anything because we don't even know what genius means and it's really not relevant to these things. But let's talk about discomfort for a second. I want to bring up an example of one of the most wondrous pieces of work, Lolita. Now, how uncomfortable must it have been for Nabokov to allow into his mind the idea that a young girl could be attractive? We herald that book as a piece of writing. But when I start to think about what that book is, and I start to think about the courage it would take me as a writer to let myself go that far into permission, that's an interesting litmus test for what permission entails. I'll give you a less noxious or less challenging. I don't even want to say noxious because here there is no morality. There's no morality when we're talking about permission. I think I like most people. I try not to carry a lot of hatred. Occasionally, there's someone I want to beat the crap out of. (laughs) For a lot of years, I wouldn't let myself think those thoughts because I actually thought, interestingly enough, it was not macho because it suggested my you know, that I had a chip on my shoulder about something. Now, when I get that feeling, I'll let it run through me and watch it and think that is one of the multitudes that is inside of me. I cannot deny that that guy's a jackass and I want to punch him in the jaw. In this moment, there's a comment Bob Dylan makes. He was not, I was not so blessed to interview him, but he talks about his multitudes in a new song. And I think part of permission is acknowledging that we are multitudes. And those multitudes can exist without threatening us. There might be some racism in you. There might be some sexism in you. In you, There was something in Nabokov, we're too afraid to name, that led to a great piece of art. And if you give yourself permission, it doesn't mean you have to express that either. But allowing yourself to feel it is part of the journey of finding the things you do want to express. And I want to be clear, this is not a function of art exclusively by any stretch. A lot of what I write about here is business and tech. My son has a friend whose dad became a half billionaire. It came because he admitted to himself before he was getting married that he thought he was too heavy. And he came up with an app to count calories that became an obsession. It didn't come... From wanting to create an app. He created MyFitnessPal as a way to figure out a better way to count calories. And he and his brother sold their company to Under Armour for half a billion dollars. That was an authentic admission. There's a guy in this book who came up with what's called a clean remote. It's a remote control at hotels that can be wiped off easily. He was really disgusted by the nasty stuff that is the food that his son had put on the remote control.
2: Well, and also that statistic of like 30% of remote controls in hotel rooms have semen on them. Like that's burned into my brain.
3: That is burned into your brain. You're like, I don't know if I'll stay in a hotel again. Yeah,
2: that's a takeaway.
3: I'm bringing my iPad. So, but that was just a visceral thing. And he's like, "Ah, I can solve that. That was an admission of how grossed out he was.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: that's where it started.
2: And I think that that's what what I think is, is interesting because you also touch upon, in, and and I don't know if you set out to do this or if this came from this discovery of all of the, the sort of things that we've been talking about, but really great artists, really great art, really are about someone showing you a part of themselves that we all relate to and can't, you know, have trouble facing. Or, you know what I mean? It's like that piece of you yeah, that, that, that vulnerability, but also just that truth about what it means to be human. And,
3: and I think both those business stories actually play into that. They, they became business successes, but they started with that. People talk about, um, necessity being the mother of invention, but I actually do believe that that is a subset of something else that I write. I think authenticity is the true forebear of invention and necessity comes underneath that. You have the authentic recognition of something that affected you. And then you realize the necessity or the necessity that there's a broader thing came out of that. But I think this all starts with an authentic feeling, an authentic, authentic admission. And, you know, it's interesting with the guy I mentioned who came up with My Fitness Pal and has since become a friend. And I've sat with him on the couch as he's tried to come up with ideas that were as as exhilarating (laughs) as the one that started it. And now he's starting with the problem, not the feeling. Yeah. And if you start with the problem, it's less visceral. Now, here's the other thing about visceral to bring us back to the beginning of this conversation that's interesting. If you're going to get past all that fear that comes personally and societally about the noxious nature of creativity—you've got to feel in your gut that something is wrong. You can't feel it intellectually. You can't intellectualize it. I'll give you again a personal example. I've taken to writing a lot of very bad music, <laughs> and I got one on the radio. You,
2: know you, you, you want? Yeah, you want to? You want to play some?
3: Let's hear it. Well, I will play you some music, but but I'm going to ask. I'm going to send you. There's a song that I briefly got on the radio that went with my Runaway Booger book. Okay. Listen to this. Listen to these bad boys. I've only learned guitar in the last three years, so it's not very good. But these are all songs. I'm not much for playing the music, but evidently I've been blessed to play with incredible artists. And all I can guess is they tell me, well, we always want to write songs, but we can't write songs. We need someone to write some songs because we can play the music. And I'm, I'm actually working with Someone on this song who's, I think, is named one of the top 100 guitarists. And we're going to put it out with the book, but I'm going to play you the beginning of it. And it's the story of creativity. Okay. And it's the story of Homer coming up with inventing Helen of Troy out of loneliness and then realizing that he's lost her because he's made Helen so famous that she no longer is interested in him. But I'm huh. only going to play through the first chorus and you can cut any of this you want. It's called From Darkness, okay?
2: Oh, oh, we're not we're not cutting any of this.
3: Man in the dust, lonely and bruised. Penniless dreamer with no clue. How I get the girl who inspires oh the feeling inside him like fire. Keep going?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Her name is Helen from Troy. He's loved us since he was a boy One day a vision a glory you know, It lifts him from the dust Here comes the chorus He tells a story Odysseys. Um, uh, what are his odysseys? <laughs> uh, well, you get the idea.
2: Yeah. So, uh, so tell me about the, you're going to release the song with the book, but what? Well, I'm not really, I'm just going
3: to, I'm going to record the song uh-huh. and then I'm going to just throw it out into the world, any place I can. And no one will really hear it. Cause it's a white noisy world. But I guess maybe the, maybe the larger point is you hear how mediocre this is and maybe with a band, it could be okay. But when I experience the euphoria of creation, I am moved enough to create that, recognizing no one may ever hear it. One out of 10 may be decent enough to get others to play with me on. But when I am creating, the sensation is so profound that... I am unblocked by any of the thing, the practical things that would tell me no. Now you might say, well, that's a pity, Matt. You should stop." stopped. <laughs> but, but look, in this book, Judd Apatow, David Milch, Mark Romanek, one of the greatest video music producers in the world, Rhiannon Giddens, for the ones who are great, they experience the same thing. And for the ones like me who are just doing it, it doesn't mean music has to be my career. Mm -hmm. Why can't I enjoy that feeling and make my living writing books? Or why can't you enjoy that? Or why can't someone write an app on the side? And I'll tell you another reason to do that. At the end of the book, I, I write a chapter called Don't Quit Your Day Job. I have had very good fortune in my books Bill Gates called the last one, one of his five of the year, along with a guy named Obama. I still work at the New York Times. I have not quit my day job. I really can't afford to do that because creativity is doesn't pay well. But creativity, and here's the biggest punchline of all of this, despite all the studies you'll see in the book and all the ones we talked about, it is a road to happiness. Yeah. When you get past that stuff, it is unburdening. It is freeing it is peacemaking, it is authenticity experiencing, and it just may add something to the world. It's one of the few things in our lives where you can have a win yourself and maybe just add something to the world.
2: Yeah, and I think that that's an important, you know, we started off by talking about the downside of creativity. And I think that, you know, as our hopefully this will be clear from our conversation that you know, you have to go through this journey, just like Homer, just like, you know, the hero's journey in order to find that place where now you can be comfortable enough with yourself, where, you know, you can, you can really create. Wait, can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. Are you at that place? You know, in some parts of my life, I feel like I am. And then in other parts, I feel like I'm hopefully at the cusp of that. I've always wanted to write a book. And I have a, a, a whole five book proposals that are sitting in a desk drawer, and none of them felt right because I feel like none of them were authentically me. And now I feel like I'm finally getting to a place where I think I know where that is. And I'm not sure that ultimately it will be a book. It might be some other kind of creation, which I'm also now more comfortable with. What do you think
3: the authentic piece of you that's missing is from those?
2: It's about... Uh, sort of touching in on the truth of, of of what it's like to sort of be me or to to have you know the experiences that I've had. I feel like I've I've so often had to tell a story about about that. But yeah,
3: all right, very very evasive, but yeah, um, it is. Let me just give you one <laughs> heartening bit of research. There's this wonderful study where Giancarlo, the very guy I started with, he's the guy who did the toxins research. He found out that people feel less burdened about their own secrets when they create, even if they don't share their secrets per se. Mm. That the very act of creating allows people to unbur- feel, have a feeling of, of not burdening. So maybe that stuff you wrote didn't feel right enough, have enough momentum to get you over the hump, but I'm not sure you need to challenge yourself to share something you don't want to share.
2: Okay. Yeah, no, I, I feel that. I, I hear what you're saying, and I'm going to deflect. Gonna,
3: I'm going to unearth you <laughs> on here. This is not about me, sister. We need another hour. And we're going <laughs> no. to we're gonna, we're gonna do it.
2: We do, but um, I have to go and uh, check into the uh, OR because I'm having surgery. Yes, you
3: are. Have a good surgery.
2: (laughs) But um, once I uh, am am recovered, we'll definitely pick up where we left off. Um, So for our listeners, Matt Richtel's new book, Inspired Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and Soul, is now available at booksellers everywhere. Matt, thanks for coming back on Inquiring Minds. And uh, clearly, we still have a lot to talk about.
3: We got more to do.
2: We do. (laughs) All right. If you've listened thus far, you probably know what's coming. In Matt's words, a world-class guitarist, opera singer, and a scribe walk into a music studio. To accompany his new book on creativity, we collaborated together to create a song about creativity. It's called From Darkness, and it includes Matt, of course, and James Nash, who is named one of the world's top 100 guitarists. And me on vocals. The song is about Homer writing the Odyssey, and it's inspired by the sound of Helen's voice. It's proof of concept of the core ideas in his book. The technology allows collaboration like never before, but mostly, sometimes, you just gotta lay it out there. And so, that's what we did. Hope you find it at least somewhat inspired.
3: dust, lonely and bruised penniless dreamer with no clue how to get the girl who inspires feeling inside him like fire her name is Helen from Troy loved her since he was a boy One day a vision, a glory It pulls him from the dust He tells a story From darkness he sees odysseys dodging sirens in the night guns slingers to the left thugs to the right hold me now I'm shaking from monsters of my own making she's the it girl of the Homer's hit becomes a cage Through the ages a desperate call Don't you know, Helen, I'm the hero after all From darkness he sees Unharnessed his odyssey Dodging sirens in the night guns, Sling us to the left, thugs to the right, and the tree above is a wind-blown ship. Helen, take my hand, for I lose my grip. Hold me now, I'm shaken from monsters of my own making. My own
2: so that's really it for this episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Royhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stephen meyer Awal, Dale Master, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, and this episode was edited by Daniel Link. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time.